Welcome to the Signal Noise podcast on ProSound Web. I'm Keith Clark, editor of ProSound Web and Live Sound International, and I'm joined by my co-host Michael Lawrence, who's technical editor of PSW and LSI, and he's also an accomplished audio professional in his own right. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. The music you heard on the way in was "Break Free" by Mike Green. You can hear more from Mike at mikegreen.bandcamp.com. All righty. We're joined this time by our guest, James Staffo, who's worked with wireless systems in professional audio for more than three decades, including serving as an RF consultant for some of the biggest live events in the business, including the Super Bowl, Grammy Awards, and dozens more. Currently, he's the chief technology officer at Radioactive Designs, a manufacturer of wireless intercom systems and related gear. So welcome aboard, James. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Keith. Absolutely. And uh, by the way, if you want to read more about James' background and a whole lot of other material, please uh, go to our podcast page if you're not already there and click on the links we've provided. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about here um, is detailed uh, more, his background, some of the the, uh, concepts and ideas we're going to be talking about here. So I encourage you to take advantage of that resource. So uh, anyway, James... um, Let's let's start out with your background, kind of a quick overview of how you got here. Um, like, uh, how did you, where did you get your initial insight, training, et cetera, into the world of wireless? Sure. So uh, it was actually mostly uh, pure luck. We'll start with that. But when I was a little kid, about uh, five or six years old, my, my granddad had um, an amateur radio shop in his uh, basement in Brooklyn, and he would regularly um, talk to relatives in Italy and people in Italy across the Atlantic with this radio, and it just amazed me as a little kid. And I went down there one day, and he he hooked me up to um, a DC voltage generator and told me to hold two probes and started turning a knob, and I got shocked, and I said, wow, that, whatever that was, I need to know more about it, and I was hooked ever since. <laughs> And he started laughing, and I felt electricity run through my heart. And I thought, "Wow, okay, whatever this is, I need to take. I need to learn about it when I grow up." Um, pretty much studied it through high school, vocational schools, and then when it came time to get professional training, um, I, I joined the submarine service and was a radio surveillance specialist um, on on U.S. Navy submarines for six years. And there were tons, about three years of electronics training before they put you out on a sub. Uh, to repair, maintain, and operate all of the radio surveillance equipment. And then when I got out of the Navy, uh, I was honorably discharged in 86. Uh, got a job shortly thereafter for a company called Vega Wireless. Again, pure luck. Uh, I went to go be a technician, but I was wearing a suit um, because my wife told me I had to wear a suit on a on an interview. And so they put my resume in the wrong pile, and I became the sales and marketing manager instead of a technician <laughs> in the back soldering with the rest of the fellas. And through that, got to meet people on Broadway and Disney World and in L.A. throughout the Grammys and and Oscar type, um, uh, you know, that level of engineers Uh, went out to NASA and and got to meet all sorts of people I would have never met if I were back in the padded cell uh, soldering wireless mic connections at Vega. So uh, in 1992, moved to Orlando, Florida, opened up professional wireless systems 
and immediately began to get really busy, mostly with Disney World and Universal Studios and the Latin networks down in Miami, Univision, <clears throat> until the World Cup came to the United States. That was in 94. And you were out for that, Keith, if I remember right. Oh, yeah. I remember walking around uh, that stadium in uh, Orlando with you doing your RF sweeps. So, so that was my first uh, shot at being a radio frequency coordinator. I, I called up the Olympic Committee and I said, hey, I have a bunch of wireless mics that I'm renting to the game. Um, who's the coordinator? And they said, coordinator? We need a coordinator? And I said, yeah, you need a wireless coordinator for all of the microphones coming from all over the world. Germany, France, Australia, uh, you know, all over the Americas, Asia. And they said, uh, well, do you want the job? And I took it. I completely undercharged and ended up being the official frequency coordinator for all nine cities, all 52 games of the World Cup in 1994. And that was my introduction to um, to the professional live event industry as a coordinator. And uh, I raised my rates since that day because I, I seriously undercharged them. Uh, but that's how it, what got me into doing uh, coordination for the NBA All-Stars and, and working at Super Bowls and, and Rose Bowls and, and uh, all of those large events, TV, um, music award shows. And that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since. So just uh, since professional wireless systems, it's at least 25 years. Uh, and uh, now, in fact, you know, I'm sort of shifting gears, trying to train the younger people to come up and um, take over the bigger shows, which they're doing. And, and there are a lot of bright young people coming up through the ranks and um, moving on into the different phase of, of wireless life here for me. Tell us real quickly about radioactive designs. Um, uh, your primary uh, product is a wireless intercom system, and you guys also make related gear. But could you tell us a bit about the the key technologies in your, um, I believe it's UV1G uh, intercom system, and really where the thinking comes from and what it can do? Right, that's correct. Uh, radioactive designs, UV1G. <clears throat> and what happened was my, my partners and I, we're all uh, event coordinators, operators. We've all had wireless um, microphone and intercom rental inventories and have been in the hot seat on many, many events. Henry Cohen is a well-known RF coordinator in New York. Jeff Shearing is um, CEO of RAD and also president of Mask Sound. So he's the company is responsible for thousands of wireless mics on Broadway uh, in theater. And we were walking through an NAB show. Gosh, it's got to be maybe 2005 or so, something like that. And there were no new intercom products coming out. It was 06. Because, but Jeff and I and Henry, all three of us, had already been to the FCC speaking on behalf of the wireless mic and comm production community because white space device laws were about to be passed and regulations go into effect, and also TV repack and spectrum auctions, which we knew would severely negatively impact wireless microphone and intercoms in the United States. And we walked through the NAB show, and we didn't see anything uh, that was going to address the challenges. And at that point, this was in 06, I remember turning to Jeff and Henry and saying, you know, the next couple of years, when, when this equipment comes out and the auctions happen, it will be more difficult to operate a wireless microphone than in any time in the history of man-made radio on the planet Earth. And if we don't come up with something, ourselves will be out of a job in another five or six years. And if the spectrum auctions had happened and we hadn't come out with radioactive designs, 
uh, at least from the comm perspective, you know, you'd be you'd be out of business on a on a traditional show. Um, all of the wireless mic manufacturers fell in, in suit and came up with new products as well. Um, I remember the first show that we introduced radioactive designs. The, the core of the technology is we went back to VHF as opposed to, at the time at least, every wireless microphone uh, available and comm system was, uh, at least analog, I should say, was in the five to 600 megahertz band, the UHF band. Well, we knew this was all going to get optioned in the near future at that time. And so we, and as a coordinator, Henry and I, and any other coordinator that has worked any event over the last 20 years, we all saw, saw everyone leave the VHF spectrum and hop up into the UHF spectrum. And we saw VHF completely empty out, still legal to operate down there. Waves propagate great, wonderful, empty space, but nobody was providing hardware down there. So it was like a clean slate for wireless. Henry and I would joke that VHF is like that bar that nobody goes to because it used to be so crowded, right? <laughs> so now VHF is completely empty, and it still is, as a matter of fact. But the first show uh, where I was going with this, the first show that we introduced radioactive designs was uh, 2014, I believe. And immediately, two other wireless mic manufacturers came up to us and said, thank you for being the first to go to VHF. We've been wanting to do it. We have a product, but we didn't want to be the first to, to release a VHF product. And now, if you look at the market, there are at least three or four wireless mic and comm manufacturers that are fabricating equipment in VHF because there's nothing wrong with it. So we actually took a step in time backwards to solve a problem that was going to happen in the future. We also went to amplitude modulation instead of FM or digital, which is every single wireless mic on the market. You will never see an AM wireless microphone but uh, it's just you cannot get the audio quality out of amplitude modulation that you can out of digital or fm even but it takes up one fifteenth the amount of space so i can pack 15 to 30 compacts in the same spectrum as one uh, fm compact so our goal was spectral efficiency and to vacate the uhf band as much as possible to make room for the wireless microphones which require more bandwidth for the audio quality. So that was the goal with RAD. And, and now that we've been out four or five years, we've, we've succeeded in that. And uh, very happy where we're at right now with gr the growth of the company. Well, and as you had mentioned uh, earlier, when uh, <clears throat> around the introduction time here, um, something you're really engaged with now is uh, educating uh, folks, and especially the younger folks, but just anyone out there, especially given the challenging times, about uh, the essential principles and operation of wireless systems in the modern environment. And as I recall, and we were talking before we came online here, you had, you had referenced the ABCs. And I was wondering if you could just take us through some of the ABCs slash essentials of wireless system operation, whether you're operating one system, say for your worship service on Sunday, all the way up to perhaps, uh, you know, a dozen or more systems. What are the essential steps to ensure success? Great. So after being in the professional wireless and comm industry for about 36 years now, you know, professionally, um, I've heard every question that could be asked. I've, I've had most every problem that one could run into. Uh, you know, as new technology comes out, there are, there are new challenges, and every product has its idiosyncrasies. 
But it boiled down to there are certain steps uh, that you can go through. There are certain a certain procedure that you could run through when you're thinking about wireless setups, whether it's one or a thousand. And if you address the few things that are required to maximize your chances for success, there are only two things that could possibly go wrong. And that is a hardware malfunction, which you have no control of as the operator, or someone coming in and creating interference that you didn't know about. Again, you have no control of that. But as far as everything else, there are, there are uh, tests and steps that you could run through to, to make sure that you're maximizing your chances for success. And I call them the ABCs of wireless because it's really, they're very simple procedures. But if you think about ABC, then you're covering all of the various aspects of these pre-tests and checks. The A is antennas, B is batteries, and C is coordination. So when you put a wireless microphone on a pastor or on an actor uh, or, or an artist, Okay, that that's transmitter walks away from you. You're finished with it, and there's not much you can do with it once that person is out um, on a stage or a performance venue or in a church. So the only control you have of the antennas in that case is on the receiver side. So when I talk about the ABCs of wireless and the A meeting antennas, I mean, what could you do from the receivers for wireless microphone anyway? What could you do with the receiver antenna placement to ensure that you're maximizing your chances for success? The B being batteries or any power supply, uh, that, of course, would apply to, again, the wireless mic transmitter. I can tell you, uh, I'm embarrassed to say there have been more than one occasion where I've had the batteries die on a transmitter while it was out on stage live for a production. And um, it's just a matter of keeping track of, of battery life. Nowadays, systems mostly have the ability to monitor battery life from the receivers. So unlike the old days where you really had no way of knowing until the battery died, um, there's not really a great excuse now to have batteries die on you. And then C is the coordination. You know, as soon as the second wireless microphone in the world was turned on, there was a need for coordination, right? Um, if you're in an environment, whether you're using one system or, or a dozen systems in a church, you still have to coordinate with the stronger RF that's around you. Uh, for example, television. That's the easiest one. Obviously, if there's a DTV channel 10, you're not going to put your wireless mic in channel 10. You're going to use channel 11, which might be clear. That's the most basic form of coordination. But it goes further now. And to my point about it being more challenging over the next year and a half or so than at any time in the history of wireless on this planet is because this year we've just completed, we're, we're about a third way into um, the TV repack and, and T-Mobile light off and Spectrum uh, auction fallout. So uh, that was all um, back in April of, I believe it was 2017, that was finalized. T-Mobile purchased most of the Spectrum. They've already lit off in over 2,000 counties across the country from Seattle to Miami. I mean, I just looked at the list before we started the podcast. Um, I just did the Rose Bowl out there in L.A. Uh, in Pasadena um, the beginning of the year in January. And the fact is that the TV has already shut down above 600 megs for the most part in preparation for the repack. But T-Mobile has not yet energized in Los Angeles, at least as of today. So I had more spectrum than I've ever had in Los Angeles. Now, by Rose Bowl next year, T-Mobile will be lit and the repack will be complete. And I'll, I'll 
we'll have a much rougher time, you know, coordinating that great event. Anyway, so we're, we're in a period of time right now where um, you may find yourself in a situation where T-Mobile or any of the other uh, winners of the auction spectrum have not yet energized. However, the TV has already repacked out of 600 megahertz. All of the television above 608 megahertz has to either shut off or move down below 608 megahertz. Uh, in other words, it's going to make 470 to 608 very, very congested, much more congested. There are still a few pockets above 600 meg that'll be legal to operate. Um, there's a guard band just above TV 37, that's 614 to 617. And there's a, a guard band or a duplex gap, they call it. It's essentially a guard band up in the 652 to 663 meg area. Still legal to operate and uh, will probably be fairly clean. Uh, but outside of those two bands, it's illegal. In fact, as of now, it's already illegal to manufacture or sell wireless microphones or intercoms above 608 megahertz, with the exception of those two splatter uh, guard bands. So that all falls under the sea of ABCs. And that's all we could do is maximize our chances for success. There is no magic bullet that I could tell you that you will not have a problem. But you could certainly maximize your chances of not having a problem. Right. James, one thing I'd like to clarify, because I ran into this very recently. Some people have receivers that are transmitters or some wireless product that, that, you know, spans from five something all the way up into the mid 600s. And they say, well, I'll just I just won't operate in that area of the spectrum. I can operate down to the 500s and it's still legal. So can you clarify that? It's my understanding is if, if the system is capable of tuning into those regions, it's it's still illegal. Is that correct? Well, okay, so here's the rule. The rule is as a manufacturer or a distributor or a dealer or a rental house, in other words, that owns wireless microphones, you cannot sell rent uh, equipment above 608 meg except for the two guard bands. Uh, if you have equipment that already operates in those, in those bands, you're, it is illegal to operate in those bands. Um, I don't know of any rule or law that would prevent you from owning the equipment, although I could say from radioactive design standpoint, we have written software <coughs> that we're putting into all new equipment sold to prevent people from using the frequencies that are no longer legal. And if any equipment comes into radioactive designs for repair, it will get programmed to the legal, it'll be limited to the legal frequencies when we ship it out of the factory. Uh, but certainly, just because your equipment uh, has the ability to be programmed into illegal spectrum, that, that doesn't make it legal. It's, it's not even owned by us anymore. T-Mobile and the other uh, auction winners now own that spectrum. Mm -hmm. So if you own gear that happens to, to do that, it's up to you to stay out of those uh, frequency bands, correct? Let's say, let's say you own a Ferrari that could go 180 miles an hour. If the speed limit's 55, you have to do 55, even though your car can go faster. Mm -hmm. So that's a good way to think. I do know most manufacturers, though, reputable wireless manufacturers, if you send equipment into their factory, they will send it when it, when it ships back out of the factory, it will be limited to legal spectrum. And in some cases, uh, if it's equipment like a Shure L3 split, just to put some, you know, uh, some real names to it, from what I understand, they, they won't even repair equipment in that split in the United States. 
which really that split tunes across at least one legal band, which is 652 to 663. So I intend to continue to use the spectrum above 608. We're legal going forward, but that's just sure stance because, you know, they want to make sure that they don't get into any trouble with the FCC. Um, however, as I said, the easy answer is just because your equipment can tune to those, those frequencies, it does not make it legal. It is still illegal to use those frequencies. So there, there are several places where, where any individual could find information on the TV repack and the T-Mobile Spectrum auction. Uh, first off, T-Mobile. Uh, it's spectrumteam at T-Mobile.com is where you can uh, email regarding your specific county. And you can also go on to T-Mobile's website and look yourself, and that is howmobileworks.com forward slash spectrum. Mm-hmm. Howmobileworks.com forward slash spectrum. And also, um, Professional Wireless Systems uh, has that same information in a different format. So that's professionalwireless.com. Great, great. And we'll, again, uh, link that from the podcast page uh, on Proson Web. So we'll put direct links for everyone so they can just click and get to that. Um, so, James, you had uh, mentioned antennas. And I got to wondering, what are the most common uh, mistakes or problems you see with folks uh, and their wireless antennas? Right. Okay. So the biggest one that I run to is either pointing them the wrong direction or placement in a bad place. If you have a stage or a church and there's a video wall, you do not want to place the antenna behind the video wall because a, the wall is going to block or shadow the signal from the transmitter, from the pastor or the actor or whoever. And B, your antenna is now pointing into a very disturbing noise source of RF. Lighting walls um, broadcast low levels of RF interference. So you really want to get your antennas as far away from these video walls as possible and have a clear line of sight to the transmitter, to the action, as I like to say. So, and the other thing is know, know which antenna you're using and which direction to point it. Uh, most people use paddles. They come, uh, they're pretty pretty ubiquitous in, in, in the, the wireless mic industry. They just look like a shark fin or a paddle. And they're meant to be pointed in a cer- certain direction. I've gone on to sets and, and productions and location where people have the antenna paddle pointed straight up. And I'll ask why they're doing that. <laughs> they're shooting, you know, are they trying to get a helicopter shot or why are they pointing straight up? And they say, well, we thought that this would allow the transmitter to see the most surface area of the receiver antenna. And the concept is right. They'll say, well, you said in your last podcast, right, with the ProSound Web that it's aperture and have surface area. Well, that's correct. But directional antennas have a logarithmic, a log periodic dipolar rate. They have they have a, a gain structure, and it only works in one direction. And if you're ever not sure, just go online from the manufacturer. They all have polar patterns, just like microphones, and make sure that your antenna is pointed the right way. What we ended up doing with RAD is, on our VHF uh, paddle antenna, we actually painted a white arrow and wrote, you know, point this way so that there's no ambiguity. 
So I think that's the main thing is antenna placement. Uh, is it in an area that's picking up more interference than it is uh, the wireless mic transmit signal or compact transmit signal? And B is don't uh, don't uh, block your antenna with anything. That means don't put it anywhere near metal. Even if it's not uh, directly in front of the antenna, any metal affects the radiation pattern of an antenna. When I say radiation pattern, that, that includes reception pattern. So if you, for example, clamp um, a log periodic dipole array or a shark fin to a metal pole, you've distorted the pattern. You want to get it at least a few feet away from any metallic structures, uh, bleachers, for example, um, uh, lighting truss. You know, you want to keep your antennas uh, a couple of feet away from metal, which is at least one wavelength of RF away. So you don't uh, cause phase cancellations, multipath over the antenna or disturb its physical pattern. An antenna is just an array of dipole antennas. And if you put another piece of metal within a wavelength or so, you're creating some unknown antenna that is not going to work the way that the manufacturer uh, determines that it should work. All righty. Well, excellent. Um, you know, we were talking before we uh, started recording here that Michael is actually uh, going down a path here of uh, probably the most the most systems he's used. And I thought maybe Michael could just talk about this application and he might have a question or two for you um, as to uh, sorting all of this out. So I'll uh, I'll get out of the way. And Michael, maybe you can you can bring us up to speed on what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think, I think James, this will be helpful to a lot of folks who, you know, maybe are used to working with a handful of channels and, you know, something comes along and we've got more than we're used to and we get a little nervous because a lot of people, you know, RF stuff is, is they kind of view it as black magic and, and, and it needn't be that. But uh, I'm working on a, a production of a musical that I'm at uh, something like 22, 24 uh, body packs right now. It's all Sure product, uh, ULXD stuff, and we've got wireless comms. And so, you know, I, I, uh, I've gotten wireless workbench and I've put in the, uh, you know, the zip code so we can get a look at the, the, the DTV situation. Uh, and I've, I've put in the products that I'm using and, and allowed the software to do the coordination. And it's really nice because it can network with all the, the gear and, and sync everything up. I've asked the director to allow me some room backstage for the receivers rather than out at front of house be in a booth where they are by default. Um, so I'm trying to just make as much of it, you know, preventative as I can and just kind of be on top of it. So, um, you know, those are some basic things that I know, or I, I think <laughs> will, will, will hopefully reduce the odds of me having an issue. I, what are the sorts of things should people be keeping an eye on if they're doing something like that? Okay. That's a great question. So while you're talking, uh, I just did a quick, the magic words that you said, first off, were that you ran the numbers into an intermod calculating software doesn't matter whose it is it's just a um it's a math coprocessor almost every wireless uh, microphone manufacturer has some type of a software to coordinate and i punched in a coordination of actually 23 wireless systems comms and mics and out of that 23 one short of your what you're doing i came up with 140,000 intermod third products so that's 140,000 frequencies that you would not want to pick when I add that last <laughs> frequency. Okay. So the first thing is, once you get really even above six uh, or ten uh, wireless mics, the first thing is use some type of intermod software. 
if you're regularly going to operate large numbers of systems, obviously you'll have to spend a couple of bucks on on one of the more high-end um, coordination software packages like the PWS IAS. If you're not doing large numbers, you know, like I said, Shure has wireless workbench. Um, different manufacturers have their version. Sennheiser has a version of uh, wireless coordination software. So you, that's the first thing. The second thing is you'll want to have some way to do an RF scan. Now, that might be the front end of your wireless mic receiver. Before you pick any frequencies, you have to know what's out there. I mean, you can pick, like, I, for example, I had to do it quickly because I was trying to punch this in while you were um, introing your, your uh, setup, so I didn't put any television. But obviously there'll be television and other high-power RF that's out there that you cannot combat with a 50 milliwatt or a 20 milliwatt wireless microphone. So you need to go to the, at least go to the websites and find out what the television that you're competing with is. And I could also send you guys um, an Excel file that your your um, all of your subscribers could poke on, and it's a conversion chart that shows you okay this channel 14 goes from 470 to 476 meg. It gives you the specific six meg chunks of of RF that are in every wireless or every uh, high-power television station in the United States. This is uh, NTSC, United States, and digital TV. So you'll want to know that. If you don't have that information available to you, then you have to, at the very least, turn on your wireless microphone receiver and hunt around. And, and if you find um, a 6-meg chunk of noise across the band, more than likely that's a DTV station. You know, So you'll want to account for that. So the first thing is find out the high power stations that you cannot alter. And then the second step is work around those with proper intermod software. The third thing, which is really important, I will not do a show without these, is you're now going to have, you know, somewhere between 10 or even six, I do it with six and 24 wireless microphone transmitters. You have to isolate those from each other. Because if you put wireless microphones within a few inches of each other, they interact and they create RF noise. I would say 10 wireless microphones, I, I see it all the time, too, at, on music festivals and things, where, they, where the PA mixer has all of the, or the monitor engineer has a bunch of wireless mics, you know, perfectly sit between the knobs on the mixing console. It works great. They make great mic holders. Unfortunately, <laughs> when, you have, when you have 8, 6, 8, 10 transmitters, in close proximity, they create an envelope of RF noise that just creates interference all around to everyone. So you go out and you can get these for, for you know, 12 for $2. They're meatloaf um, metal pans. You can get them at, you know, any, any department store or food supply store. If you can't find those, you could use tinfoil or go to lighting and beg for some black wrap. And you just have to isolate those those transmitters from each other by putting them in the tin pans, the aluminum pans, uh, the black wrap. You can make little holders out of the black wrap or tin foil from catering if you have to. But it's really important that you isolate the transmitters from each other. This is after you've done the coordination and everything else you've done correctly. You still, once you're in, in your show or on your event, you want to isolate those transmitters from each other or they can create major problems, including running the batteries down lower because you've now detuned all of the adjacent transmitters. So um, that's, that would be the third thing I would do with any setup of over six mics or so. I think it was you guys had a picture on your LinkedIn page recently of the, uh, the mics ready for the, the Super Bowl halftime show, set it out, labeled, and in the, in the little metal trace. I think I saw that this morning. 
<laughs> yeah, I've been doing that since about 1995. Um, Super Bowl is one of the large events that I have turned over to um, the younger guys. They're doing a bang-up job. They've been done a couple of years now. And, and yeah, anytime you have any number of wireless microphones, you want those to stay isolated. And they have to be turned on because the mixers, you know, on Super Bowl, there might be 10 different mixers down the chain that want to pre-listen to these mics. So you have to have them on so they can cue them up whenever they want and know, okay, I have continuity, I hear ambience, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have the mics on. So, so you're only, as the RF tech now, or, or the guy who's been thrown into that position, <laughs> you have to go into it knowing that the mics will be on and now your part of it is to make sure that that situation doesn't create interference onto maybe some other mics that are out in the middle of a, a football field in that case or out on a pasture somewhere. If, if the microphone on the pasture is, you know, 30 feet away, 50 feet away from your receiver antennas and all of your wireless mics are on a mixing console right under the antenna, that antenna is going to pick up the interference from the, from the mics on the mixing console and it'll create a dropout or noise up. On the, on the pastor's mic. So that's another reason you want to isolate uh, the transmitters. So I, I've been aware of some products that are on the market for a couple of years, you know, RF spectrum scanners. Uh, and it seems like recently, though, there's have some options that have come out that are a lot more affordable. And, and is there anything you would recommend for somebody that maybe doesn't have a wireless system that's capable of doing its own scan? Is there, is there a product or two or, or something that you could recommend to them that they could use for something like that? Sure. There's a bunch of them. Um, it really depends on your budget, obviously. <clears throat> I mean, on the, on the high end, you, know, you can go get a Roden Schwartz spectrum analyzer, you know, used, it might cost 8,000 um, bucks. Most people don't need that. Uh, there's a company called TTI. TTI sells a really good product. I believe the current model for it is a 2700. Those are a little under $2,000. Um, there's a RF Explorer, which is more like in the $350 category. Uh, I have one of each, by the way, because people ask me about them all the time. So I, I have one of each of those, and I, and I uh, test them against each other for accuracy, frequency, and, and amplitude accuracy. They're all accurate. Um, obviously, the lower-end stuff um, it might be a little slower sweep, but if you're looking for television stations or, or hunting down interference, they work just fine. The RF Explorer and the TTI are both portable units. They're very light. You can grab a directional antenna and run around, you know, DFing, you know, direction-finding interference. And certainly you can put a whip antenna on one and find all of the digital TV and even T-Mobile um, that might affect your, your setup. So, again, on, on the more economical side, you have the RF Explorer. You know, midway up there uh, is a TTI. And then above, way up there, you'd have the Enritsus, the Roden Schwartz's, um, you know, that type of equipment that's generally more, I mean, almost bench grade precision test stuff. Um, but I use mine to tune, you know, tune, tune transmitters. And, and so you may need that. So the equipment's out there for that. But, but the, and you also have um, lots of software programs that you can get. RF um, Venue has a great one that you just hook up to your computer. It turns your computer into a spectrum, a pseudo spectrum analyzer. So uh, the RF venue unit uh, is a good one to look at. Uh, And when I say um, using your wireless microphone receiver as a scanner, it doesn't have to have a scan function. Um, All you have to do is run through a couple of frequencies. And if you see an RF 
level on, on your on your RF meter, if there's a high level, well, then you know that there's there's a signal there. So you might have to manually do it. It doesn't have to automatically scan. You could certainly there's a manual way to do that. Uh, it just takes some time. Right. So uh, you don't have to spend any money. It just takes time. If if you you know it's kind of a trade off. You have time or money, right? So, um, but there's a host of programs out there. I like the RF menu. I like the RF Explorer. Um, and TTI has been really reliable. It's probably for the for the cost um, one of the one of the better handheld portable spectrum analyzers out there. So if I think people that are familiar with running a couple channels of wireless, they're used to okay. Well, I'm going to pick group three, and I've got you know eight channels within group three, and they're pre coordinated in in the receivers and the transmitters, and you set them, and you're good to go. And then you go to add a you know, a couple more products in there, and then they say, okay, well, now I'm going to use group two and use that one through eight. And, and I don't think those groups are, are designed to be used at the same time because now they're going to intermod against each other. So you had, you know, they set eight frequencies that, that won't intermod, but each group would be independent, right? So is that now we're getting into we really want to do a master coordination instead of just saying, okay, you guys are group one, you guys are group two, because I don't think the manufacturers are designing those groups of eight frequencies to work together. Is that correct? That is correct, and that's a that's a great uh, question. That's a great point because I, I know lots of people, um, you know, that use the groups. Well, if you're using all Sure product, for example, in one band like J5, just to pick a number, uh, you know, UHFR J5, right? Okay, those groups are designed to work together. As soon as you introduce a wireless intercom, whether it's a radioactive designs or a Telex or HME or what have you. You've completely thrown off the coordination that was assumed when they when they devised the groups. Okay, the group only works when you're dealing with a manufacturer and one only, and one band from that specific manufacturer only. As soon as you add an IFB or a wireless com or a different type of mic, let's say you pick an Audio Technica mic to work with your Shure or your Sennheiser, okay, you no longer can use the groups. They they no longer um, take into in account the intermod that will be produced by these other devices that were not um, designed to work with the group that's preset at the factory. And also, by the way, those groups don't take into account any television, any of the pre-auction stuff or post-auction, I should say, or any of the TV repack um, scenarios. That Those groups were pretty much designed in a padded cell in a screen room <laughs> at a wireless mic factory somewhere. So they work if you're in a screen room or in a facility that's getting no interference from outside and you're not using any, anybody else's uh, wireless microphone brands, makes or models. As soon as you get to the point that you are mixing this equipment together, you have to stop thinking about the pre-programmed groups at that point. So that's when you're really going to want to go to the software and do check the intermods and check the TV and do the basic housekeeping stuff. And I can tell you that you know I'm certainly not an RF tech, so all of this is sort of you know trying to – to stumble on through it, but it doesn't take a long time. It didn't take me a long time to check the local TV bands and get them to pop up in the software and to tell it how many units I had and to watch it calculate them all out. Uh, it took me a couple of minutes. So this is not a big time-consuming thing, I think, for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are really scared of that or maybe the time investment that's involved in it, and, and I, I don't think that's the issue. I think it's just taking the initiative to, to be on top of it. Right, absolutely. Uh, the just about every intermod analysis program out there now, uh, you can punch in a zip code and it'll give you all the TV stations for that zip code right off the bat. That's right. half your battle, right? 
and then as far as punching in numbers, you know, I could I could pretty much calculate an entire show of even up to 250 frequencies in about you know 10 15 minutes, depending how on how lucky I am because there is a lot of luck involved when you're throwing darts at that dartboard. Um, if you're if you're under you know say 30 systems, yeah, it doesn't take any time at all. And in fact, if someone's concerned about trusting the, the software, which I've learned that I have to trust it, there's a there's a post coordination check that you can do in a matter of minutes. And if you're going to have a problem due to intermod or interference that the software might not have found or know, known about or calculated for, you will find it in this one minute check. For for 24 to 30 mics, this test, if all goes well, doesn't take more than 60 seconds. And it will unveil any problem short of a hardware malfunction, which again, you have no control of, or interference from someone who entered the venue after you've done all your tests. If the person entered the venue while you're doing the test, you will find them when you do this one-minute test. And I call it the RF war game. You turn on all of your wireless mics for this RF war game, and you go to RF number one, you turn it off. With all of the rest of the 23 mics on, you should have, look at your receivers, and all 23 of the transmitters that are on, their receiver should have pegged RF bars. The RF number one that is off should have no bars. If it has more than one or two RF bars, then you're getting interference. You have to recalculate. Assuming it's clean, you turn RF number one on, you go to number two, turn off number two transmitter, and the other 23 mics should be pegged, and RF number two should be dead quiet clean. If it's not, you have an intermod problem. Change the frequency. So, in other words, you'll run. Th- if, if all goes well, as long as it takes to turn a transmitter off, watch the LEDs go dark, and turn it back on, it's all of about six seconds okay multiply that by 24 and you end up with the amount of time it takes to war game 24 wireless mics so that's that's my final check and i do that by the way throughout the event even once we're in show i'll have everything lit in my little metal tray pans and i'll occasionally go through and just kill the mics one at a time and look at the receiver to make sure that the rf is dead quiet clean if someone has walked in after we had our downbeat, right, our, our show starts, our event starts, then I'll see interference on a mic that was clean the last time I checked it, and I'll know, okay, somebody's out there on my frequency, and you have a couple of options. You could either run after them and try to find them, which sometimes you can't do because you have to sit in your seat, or you could just simply change to a clean frequency, reprogram. I always program the receiver first, make sure that the receiver goes dead quiet, which indicates that you're not getting intermod or interference. And then I program the transmitter, do a quick audio check, put it back in the tin. But that RF war game takes less than a minute, and it will absolutely verify whether you're going to have, you know, success short of a hardware malfunction, uh, or, or, you know, you're certainly it's your way of uh, maximizing your chances for success. Well, that's uh, certainly helpful for, I think, a lot of our listeners are going to find that. Uh, it's it's easy. So, you know, I think the, the, the theme here is just preparation. It's not black magic. Uh, you know, there, there's always going to be some element of rolling the dice in live production, but we can be prepared and we can be on top of this with just a couple minutes of uh, forethought and planning. Right. And, you know, it's funny. A lot of people, as you say, they, they consider it voodoo. You know, for a while, just for fun, I'd have little chicken feet hanging around my uh, <laughs> RF. Or, uh, but but it was all a joke. You know, RF is, is physics. It's just like audio. It's a, a form of energy that could be manipulated. And once you master it, 
um, you are the master of how that is going to react in your environment. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that problems won't come up that you've never seen. I've been doing this for at least 36 years, closer to 40 years, and I learn something every event. Something always goes wrong every single event that I haven't come across yet. But there are a number of things that you could do, again, to maximize your chances for success. It's not voodoo. It's not black magic. It's just a it's a it might be a little bit of an art form, but it's science and it's physics. And you certainly can um, read more about it, learn about it and learn to master it. Well, I'm feeling very inspired now to tackle my production of West Side Story. (laughs) (laughs) All right, James. Well, thank you so much. I think we'll wrap it up here. And uh, again, anyone um, uh, not uh, listening to this podcast uh, via ProSound Web, be sure to go to our podcast page where we'll have uh, links to all of this great stuff that James has been talking about and perhaps even more and a nice photo of James as well. So anyway, James, thanks so much for your time and so much great input today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Wonderful. Love to share the info. Thank you, James.